And they're thinking to him, themselves, Jesus' death made no sense. To voluntarily surrender to your enemies makes no sense. To them, his death seems so senseless. It seems so futile. In fact, they might have even said wasteful. What did he do? And why did he do it? As we share communion together today, we're going to revolve around that. This Good Friday. If you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus is about to break bread with his disciples as they've come together for the Passover. Luke chapter 22, and it says this, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And Jesus said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new deal with God, the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. I'd like to pray with you for a minute. Father, as we bow now, in so many ways I feel woefully inadequate to talk about these things. I just, I think about last night, I think about this morning as I was reflecting on what you were going through, Lord Jesus, and you know, I know many of the facts, but it's just overwhelming to think of all that you did for me and for each person that's here with us or in the gym or listening online. We are so grateful. And so, Lord, as we consider the what and the why a little bit, we invite you to be honored. We want to celebrate what you did. We want to acknowledge what you did. We want it to permeate our heart. And we say this, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm going to take you through a series of verses that talk about these things that I've just mentioned. It says in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then back to the book of Luke, chapter 22, and verse 42, after he's had this supper with them, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are tired. Jesus goes off by himself, and he's praying to his father. And he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. 
He knows what's coming. He doesn't want to go through with it. But not my will, he says, but yours be done. He knows all that's coming, but he still voluntarily goes to the cross. He knew about the mocking that he would endure. He knew that they would spit in his face. He knew that they would take their spears and butt-hand him with the end of their spears in his rib cage and his kidneys. He knew they would punch him in the face. He knew that they would flog him, beat him just to the moment before he dies. And the flesh, quite literally, would be flying in the air from the severity of it. He knows that they would take huge spikes and drive them into his wrist, not into the meaty part of his hand, but right here where the bones connect to the wrist and the hand. He knows that they would drive them through his feet as well. He knows that this is a particularly cruel way to die, initially invented by the Phoenicians, but perfected in a sense, if I can even use that word, by the Romans, so that the trauma, the accumulated blood loss, and eventually he would die by asphyxiation. Because you were positioned on the cross in such a way that your body weight slumped down and it compressed your diaphragm and made it difficult for you to breathe. This is why the legs were bent, so that you could, with physical effort, raise your body up and allow yourself to take a labored breath, which meant that you slowly died because of the accumulated blood loss. Eventually, you couldn't raise yourself up, and you died by asphyxiation. The thing about this is all through the night as he goes through a series of mock trials where they've paid people off to lie about him, as he sits there and takes it over and over again as the guards are abusing him, as he goes through this whole day, the events that I've just described, through the whole time, Understand very clearly that at any moment he had the ability to stop what was happening. At any moment. It says in Matthew 26, verse 53, which is one of the parallel passages to this Lucan passage. He says, Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's more than 60,000 angels, which I think would do the trick. At any moment, he could have stopped what was going on, but he didn't. And he did all of that for me, he did all of that for you, and all of this is because you chose to sin. And the result, and Scripture is very clear about this, this banishes us from relationship with God because of our choices. And so as we come to the table, I invite you to consider and to think about what he did for you. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, it says in Matthew, again, 
From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did Jesus mean by that? The sixth hour to the ninth hour, based in their culture and their way of approaching time, meant, in our understanding, noon until about three o'clock in the afternoon. And so darkness comes over the land in the middle of the day. This is not because of some eclipse or some explainable phenomena as we would traditionally understand it. It's just something that God supernaturally does to make a rather dramatic point. Bearing in mind that he's created the universe and all about and, and sustains it all, he causes this to happen to make a very distinctive point. And the darkness, as we sang about in some of the f- songs just moments ago, represents judgment. It means a judgment on the land and on the people, but also one further judgment, which we also sang about. A judgment on Jesus. A cosmic judgment. And again, we sang about this earlier. Jesus never sinned. The scriptures tell us this in the book of Hebrews. And yet, and in 2 Corinthians, it tells us this. And yet he was tempted in every way. But the spirit-filled God-man never sinned. Unblemished. The perfect sacrifice. Once for all, the scripture says, the perfect lamb of God. So what happened? Through all eternity, and this is going to be something we really can't get our minds around. The scripture tells us that God is one, one essence. Deuteronomy 6. But all through the scriptures as well, beginning in the first chapter of the Bible, we're told that God is one in essence, but three distinct persons. And so for all eternity, the Trinitarian God of which Jesus is a vital part, they've been together. And he's perfectly holy. He's absolutely pure. And the scripture then says, as Solo read to us early from, earlier from Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. So we've made this willing choice. And the Lord has laid on Jesus, it says in verse 6, the iniquity slash the sin of us all. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him, speaking of Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. I want you to think about this with me for a second. 
That means one by one by one, every one of your sins was laid on Jesus. One by one by one. Personalize it. One by one by one. And because God the Father is holy, when that sin, when my sin, when your sin was laid on Jesus, God the Father stepped away from him. God the Father turned his back on Jesus because God does not tolerate sin. All the angels, the millions of angels who have worshipped Jesus ever since they were created by God, they turn their back on him too. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross and the enormity of all of our sin being laid on him, the Father forsaking him because our sin was laid on him, being abandoned in that way must have been, I can't even begin to describe how agonizing, and it overwhelms him. Personally, I believe as horrific as the physical abuse that I described to you was, as difficult as that was, I believe our sin being laid on him and his father forsaking him was even worse. If you're a dad here today, just try to imagine the role of God the Father. Can you imagine doing something like that to your kid? And doing it for people that are largely ungrateful? And so even though Jesus is completely innocent, he's judged because of my sin and because of yours. And so when we come to the place where we share communion together, I invite you to remember this. I invite you to contemplate this. I invite you to recognize each of your sins, one by one by one, was laid on him. He sacrificed and did what he did for you. Not for a big mass of people, he did it for you individually. I invite you to take him and your commitment to him as seriously as possible. I invite you, if you need to repent because you've been overly casual in your relationship with God, now is the time to do it. This is not something to goof around about. And as we share communion together, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, if there's been a point in your life where you've said, yeah, you know, I have made those sinful choices. I realize I'm helpless to deal with these things. I realize it's only in Jesus and Jesus alone that I can be forgiven. I've acknowledged these things. I've asked for forgiveness. I've trust him to be my savior and I've surrendered my life to him. And he is not only my savior, but my Lord. Um, 
you're welcome to share communion with us. The bread and the juice are emblematic. They, the bread represents his broken body. It reminds us of this. It, it paints a word picture for us. The juice um, is, is reminiscent of the covenant that Jesus established that we read about from Luke 22, um, representing his shed blood. And so as we come to communion, I invite you to celebrate the sacrifice. I invite you to celebrate the unearned, undeserved forgiveness that you have. Man, it's, there's something sweet about being forgiven. I invite you to celebrate that because of Jesus, as we sang about in one of those songs, as we read from 2 Corinthians 5, because of Jesus, the scripture says you are righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he did for you. In fact, you're seen by God positionally as holy. Because he sees you in light of what Jesus has done for you. Louis Giglio wrote this. The enemy wants to define you by your scars. Jesus wants, you to, defi- wants to define you by his. I invite you to celebrate the victory that we have in Christ. And so, at home, or here in the sanctuary or in the gym, we invite you to take your elements, and let me just explain to you how we're going to do it. I'm going to read a verse from our text that relates to the broken body of Christ, the bread that represents that. We're going to have a time of silence, an extended time, where you can just be in prayer, where you can be grateful to Jesus for allowing his body to be broken for you. Then at the conclusion of that, I'll pray And then I'll say something and we'll all take the bread together or the wafer as the case may be. And then we're going to repeat that process with the juice. A verse, silence, pray, take it together. So beginning with the broken body of Christ, it says in verse 19, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
How grateful we are, Lord Jesus, that you offered up your body for us. That because of this action, because of your atoning work on our behalf, there's provision for healing. For our physical self, for our spiritual, for our emotional self. How grateful we are that you didn't call on those angels to release you from those circumstances. Instead, you literally stepped into them. And so we thank you that your body was broken on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ which is broken for us. We do this in remembrance of him. Let's eat together. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So it's a deal with God. And God never lies. God never breaks his promises. God never goes back on a deal. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Lord Jesus, we know that you were watching when they were warned in the garden, the moment you defy God and eat of this tree, this is the moment you begin to die. And then your heart was broken when they did it, when we did it. And then in verse 15 of chapter 3, it says the first promise of your coming is given. And we read and know in scripture that without the shedding of blood, there's no, without death, there's no substitutionary, big words here, atonement for our sin. So I thank you, Lord, for your blood that you willingly allowed 
to spill out for me and for us. And as we take this juice, which reminds us, which represents this, we're deeply grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This represents the new covenant that God established with us, the blood of Christ shed for you.